I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the May 23rd issue. We're in Season 2, and this is Episode 2. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect together on how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. And we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was produced for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics in hair loss, And today we're going to talk about six research studies from the past month or two. We'll talk about oral minoxidil in children. Oral minoxidil is increasingly used around the world in adults. What's the data in children? We'll review two very interesting studies, including a recent study about oral minoxidil in children aged 10 to 17. And we'll talk about oral minoxidil compounding errors. I think this is a fascinating study by Dr. Sergio Vanogelvan and colleagues from Spain. Oral minoxidil comes in various sizes, 2.5, 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams. Sometimes we ask a compounding pharmacist to make up doses for our patient that are specific for our patient. What happens if those doses are made up incorrectly? We'll take a look at a fascinating study which has some very valuable lessons for us. Then we'll talk about doxycycline pigmentation. Doxycycline is a tetracycline family member. We have tetracycline, doxycycline, minocycline, sericycline. Minocycline is famous for causing pigmentation issues. What about doxycycline? We'll take a look at some interesting recent data on doxycycline skin pigmentation. Then we'll take a look at scalp sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis is a wonderful imitator of so many different conditions in all parts of medicine. It's a wonderful mimicker. We'll take a look at a case of scalp sarcoidosis and then we'll talk a bit more about sarcoidosis in general. We'll take a look at a pharmacovigilance study concerning JAK inhibitors, especially tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, and baricitinib, a very important study for us to know about. And then we'll take a look at eyelash trichomegaly, or increase in the length and thickness of eyelashes. What features can contribute to eyelash trichomegaly? We'll come to see the variety of medications, genetic and congenital conditions, as well as systemic conditions can contribute to eyelash trichomegaly. And we'll talk about a case of trichomegaly from an epidermal growth factor inhibitor drug. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin by talking about oral minoxidil in children. Are you using oral minoxidil? Are you using oral minoxidil in adults? It's less common to be using oral minoxidil in children, but certainly it's becoming more common. I'd like to review a very interesting study from Dr. Van O'Galvan's group from Spain, Looking at the use of oral minoxidil for androgenetic hair loss and telogen effluvium in 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. But before I do that, I think there's an important study that I'd like you to know first because it sets the stage for Dr. Vano Galvan's study. Jurgen and colleagues in 2021 reported one of the first significant studies of oral minoxidil use in children. And this was a study of eight girls aged 2 to 10 who were using oral minoxidil for loose antigen syndrome. Seven of the eight patients had an improvement in density with oral minoxidil, and all eight patients had a reduction in shedding. The only side effect was hypertrichosis on the legs in one patient. 
the dose of oral minoxidil in that study by Jurgen and colleagues was based on weight and was essentially 0.01 milligrams per kilogram on average. And so that was a very important study which suggested that oral minoxidil might be fairly safe for children at the right dose. Hypertrichosis was the only side effect. There was no tachycardia, no dizziness, no edema in that study. Of course, it's eight patients. But we have to start somewhere, and it's a very valuable study. So from Jurgen and colleagues, we moved to this study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in April, looking at oral minoxidil in individuals age 10 to 17. And this was a study of 45 patients. And so the group set out to evaluate the safety and efficacy of oral minoxidil in pediatric patients. Those 45 patients, 87% were prescribed oral minoxidil for androgenetic hair loss. 13% were prescribed oral minoxidil for telogen effluvium. And in 31% of the patients, 14 children, oral minoxidil was the only treatment. Oral minoxidil was used at a dose of 0.63 milligrams mean dose in girls, 2.35 milligrams mean dose in boys. And the authors point out that most of the patients started out at 0.5 milligrams, and they increased if there was no improvement or it was felt that additional higher doses were needed. So 80% of the children had an improvement, and 20% had their condition stabilized. And the follow-up ranged from 3 months to 24 months. So a study of 45 patients. What percentage of patients had side effects? 25. So 25% of patients had mild side effects. Hypertrichosis, or increased hair growth, was noted in 18% of patients. Shedding happened in 2 patients. Hypotension happened in one, low blood pressure. And the authors point out to us that these side effects were mild, and none of the patients needed to stop oral minoxidil. One patient did need a dose adjustment, but it was very well tolerated. So I think this is a really helpful study. Oral minoxidil appears to be well tolerated. Here we have a study in 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. It builds upon the prior study in 2-year-olds to 10-year-olds. It highlights that oral minoxidil is fairly well tolerated in children, at least in these two small studies. And the side effects seem to be fairly similar to what we see in adults. Hypertrichosis, shedding, sometimes dizziness and blood pressure issues. These two studies seem to suggest that fluid retention issues might be a little less common in children. Whether it truly is needs bigger studies. Some of the studies in Oral minoxidil in adults are over a 1,000 patients. Uh, so here we have very small studies, 45 patients here. So clearly we need more studies. It probably is the case that oral minoxidil wouldn't be a starting point for many children, but certainly it's on the list in children that are refractory to various treatments and does tend to be well tolerated. And so there are two key pediatric oral minoxidil studies to know about. I think it's important to know about Jurgen and colleagues from 2021. That's in the British Journal of Dermatology. That's the study of the eight children with loose antigen syndrome. And now it's important to know about this new study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology about oral minoxidil in those age 10 to 17. So two important studies to know about. For oral minoxidil in children, let's stay on the subject of oral minoxidil and talk about some very important information that comes from a compounding error. Are you having your patients split oral minoxidil pills? Oral minoxidil in North America comes in 2.5 milligram pills. Sometimes we have patients split it in half, sometimes in quarters. In other countries, it comes in 5 milligram pills. In some countries, it comes in 10 milligram pills. If we want specific doses, sometimes we ask a pharmacy to make it up. If we want 0.25 milligrams, because that's all the patient tolerates, then the only way for a patient to have 0.25 milligram pills is to have a pharmacist make it up. What are the risks of having a pharmacist go ahead and make up little capsules of oral minoxidil at the dose that we want? Well, this study looks at some errors that can occur, and this is a very valuable study, again, by Dr. Sergio Vano-Galvan's group from Spain, published in May. 
So we we know that oral minoxidil is used at, at doses that are ranging from 0.25 milligrams up to 5 milligrams. It's pretty uncommon to go higher. Women tolerate lower doses than men. Most female patients use 0.625 milligrams to 1.25 milligrams. Some go up to 1.875 or 2. Very rarely we go higher in women, but that's very uncommon. In men, the doses are typically 2.5 milligrams, sometimes 5, and and sometimes 1.25. But they generally tend to be a little bit higher in men than in women. And as I mentioned, these minoxidil pills are ready-made. They're ready to go. And they come in various sizes, depending on the country that you're in. And sometimes what we do is we give patients the pre-made pills. And we tell them to either split it or don't split it, depending on the dose that we need. Some female patients, we start at 0.625 milligrams, which means taking a 2.5 milligram pill and cutting it into four pieces. And if they do well, we sometimes go up to a half a pill. And so we use the pre-made pills as as a starting point to guide how we change treatment dose. And so when it's not possible to get the dose that you're hoping your patient uses, we sometimes ask a compounding pharmacy to make up the dose we want. And we can make up any dose. If we want our patient to have two milligram doses, we can ask a pharmacist to make up two milligram pills. Or they can make up one milligram pills and the patient can take two. And so a compounding pharmacy can really help us to make up whatever dose of oral minoxidil we want. Compounding minoxidil opens the door for errors. And we are only human, and humans are subject to error. A very valuable study, again from Dr. Van O'Galvan's group in Spain, showed us what can happen. And I really congratulate these authors for presenting us with such a valuable study. We learn from errors that are made, and this is a very, very helpful study. The ending is good, and so the story ends well, but the story starts out a little bit scary. So the authors describe 12 female patients who developed serious adverse side effects when the wrong dose of oral minoxidil was made up by the compounding pharmacy. All patients were receiving a higher dose than intended. In four patients, the little pills they were taking were 10 times higher than they were supposed to get. In seven patients, it was 20 to 100 times higher. And in one patient, the dose of oral minoxidil that they took in was a 1,000 times higher than intended. None of the 12 patients had any prior heart problems or had any blood pressure issues. And in nine of the 12 patients, an adverse side effect came immediately after the first dose. In one patient, it didn't come after the first dose, but it came after the second dose. In one patient, it came after the third dose, and in another patient, it happened within the first week. What were the side effects? Well, nine patients had elevated heart rate. Nine patients had headaches. Seven patients had dizziness, hypotension, presyncope. Six patients had generalized edema or swelling. Two patients had angina or angina, and two patients had elevated troponin. Troponin is a marker of muscle injury often heart muscle injury, but can be any muscle injury. And one patient had a stroke, and that was a patient who was receiving oral minoxidil at 1,000 times higher than the intended dose that was found on the prescription. And one patient suffered a myocardial infarction, heart attack. And this patient was on a dose about 200 times higher than the prescribed dose. What's really remarkable here is that all patients had a full recovery. And in four patients, once the error was figured out, they went back to using oral minoxidil at a low dose without any further issue. So this is a really valuable report. And again, I, I think it's wonderful that we have an ability to learn from this report. It's clear that compounding minoxidil opens the door for error. Pharmacies are busy. Pharmacies are increasingly busy. Pharmacies are short-staffed. There's an increasing demand on pharmacies for oral minoxidil. This is subject to error. It's possible that a pharmacist who hasn't compounded oral minoxidil before might be a little more likely to make an error than a more experienced pharmacist. It's really fortunate that all patients recovered fully in this study. Clearly, strokes can have long-lasting sequelae. Heart attacks can have long-lasting sequelae. Strokes and heart attacks can be fatal. Dizziness can 
lead to injury. Dizziness can uh, lead to falls, broken bones, and long-term sequelae. So we don't want our patients dizzy. But I think this study has some important messages for us, and that is that any patient who starts compounded minoxidil and develops an unusual side effect, unusual dizziness that you didn't expect, chest pain that you didn't expect, I think it's really important that a patient stop the oral minoxidil immediately and one figure out, is it a compounding error? Is that any possibility? Or is it that the patient does not tolerate this medication at that particular dose? This study teaches us that compounding errors happen quickly. But of course, if a patient has been on oral minoxidil for many months or many years and goes back to the pharmacy to get a new dose, it's possible that the new pills are made up incorrectly. So we always have to be open to the possibility that there are compounding errors. Fortunately, it's not common. I prescribe minoxidil with pills. I prescribe compounded minoxidil. I have pharmacies in various locations that make up oral minoxidil with great success. But I think this study is really important because it tells us that errors can occur. I think the second message is that the pharmacist that's chosen should potentially be asked if he or she is comfortable compounding oral minoxidil. Now, we don't do that. And most physicians don't. We, we don't say to pharmacists, A, because we don't think of it, and B, out of respect, that, dear pharmacists, please make up two milligram capsules. If you have any concerns or if this is something you haven't done before, would you kindly let me know? We don't do that. But I think it's an important lesson that if there's any hesitation from the pharmacist about making up oral minoxidil, perhaps we need to have a pharmacist that is experienced in making up. So I think this is a really valuable report. And again, I congratulate the authors for sharing this study. It's wonderful that these 12 patients had a good outcome in the end, but I think we have to be careful with compounding oral minoxidil. So let's move on to doxycycline. Are you using doxycycline for scarring alopecia? Doxycycline is an antibiotic, but it has some very interesting anti-inflammatory properties, and that allows it to be used to block inflammation in lichen plano pilaris, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia, dissecting cellulitis, folliculitis, decalvans. And so it's a very valuable treatment in many different types of scarring alopecia. What side effects do you counsel patients about? Every medication has a long list of potential side effects. Fortunately, most side effects don't occur, so they're pretty rare. And with doxycycline, we often counsel about headaches, upset stomach, photosensitivity, so you burn easier in the sun. Women can have yeast infections. It's important not to become pregnant. But that's often the extent of where we do our counseling. Depending on the patient, there may be other things as well. We may talk about some drug interactions. But what about hyperpigmentation? We don't usually talk about hyperpigmentation all that much. A study recently published reminds us that doxycycline can cause hyperpigmentation. The tetracycline antibiotics are well known to cause hyperpigmentation. The tetracycline family includes minocycline, tetracycline, doxycycline, sericycline. And minocycline is famous for causing pigmentation problems. It causes pigmentation of the skin, mucous membranes, nails, and even the sclera of the eye. Well, a new study reminds us that doxycycline can cause pigmentation. Afrin and colleagues report that there was a 40-year-old male that developed pigmentation after starting doxycycline. The patient started 100 milligrams twice daily for the treatment of acne. Two weeks into the treatment, the patient developed hyperpigmentation of his face, including in areas that had prior acne scars also pigmentation on the hands. He denied any sun exposure, so this wasn't hyperpigmentation developing from sun exposure or doxycycline induced photosensitivity causing pigmentation changes. There was no pigmentation in the mucous membranes. There was no pigmentation around the nails. This is a publication that's available free online with Afrin and colleagues in Curious, April 2022 issue, and the patient developed this hyperpigmentation on the cheeks as well as the hands. And fortunately, the pigmentation diminished after the medication was stopped. And so the authors point out to us that doxycycline-induced skin hyperpigmentation seems to be pretty uncommon. There's about 18 patients in the literature that have been reported with this particular side effect. 
Of those 18 patients, there's 13 males, 5 females. They range in age from 11 years to 87 years. And so doxycycline hyperpigmentation frequently occurs on the face and certainly can occur at the site of previous scars. And in most cases, it seems to resolve with stopping the medication. So how soon after starting doxycycline does this hyperpigmentation occur? Well, the authors reviewed all of the studies in the medical literature, and they report back that it happens anywhere from 2 days to 12 years. But the median time for onset is around 8 months. And in about 40% of patients, the pigmentation occurs within the first month of using this medication. And in about three-quarters of patients, the pigmentation has taken place by one year for those that are using it chronically. What sites are affected? Well, the authors point out that four of the 18 patients in the medical literature had pigmentation in areas of prior scarring. Four patients had pigmentation affecting the face, and this was the most common area. Four had pigmentation of the lower limbs, and four had pigmentation of the upper limbs. What happens when you stop the drug? There was 14 patients in the medical literature that stopped doxycycline after getting pigmentation, and nine of those patients had the pigmentation issue resolve. In some, it took one month. In some, it took two years. So it does take time in some patients for the pigmentation to resolve, and in four patients, the pigmentation issue did not resolve. So doxycycline can cause hyperpigmentation even without sun exposure. It can affect the skin, it can affect the nails, it can affect mucous membranes. And so we have to be aware of this in, in patients that are reporting these concerns back to us. Fortunately, it's not very common. But I think that patients who say to us that my skin is becoming much darker, that it may very well be a true side effect of doxycycline. So from doxycycline, let's move to scalp sarcoidosis. Are you seeing patients with sarcoidosis? It's a pretty uncommon condition. But sarcoidosis is an incredible mimicker of other conditions. And so whenever we talk about sarcoidosis, we have to think about the possibility that every year that goes by, we miss cases of sarcoidosis. It mimics so many things. And so we have to be humble to the fact that sarcoidosis mimics many medical conditions. And so many medical conditions that you may have diagnosed may have been sarcoidosis. There's many wonderful mimickers in medicine. Sarcoidosis is one of them. Tuberculosis, leprosy, syphilis, perineoplastic syndromes. These are wonderful imitators. They resemble a lot of different conditions. So Kim and Lee publish a very interesting study in April in the Annals of Dermatology about scalp sarcoidosis associated with hair loss. This was a 78-year-old female who presented with a itchy, red, thickened plaque at the back of the scalp accompanied by hair loss. It's been troublesome for the patient for about 20 years, but she was otherwise healthy. No lung issues, heart issues, joint issues. She's healthy. And the authors show in this study that she had this area of hair loss at the back that was red, itchy, scaly. And when it was biopsied, it showed the classic features of sarcoidosis, which are these epithelioid histiocytes with Langhans-type giant cells, some inflammation, but these so-called granulomatous, non-caseating granulomatous inflammation, which is typical of sarcoidosis. And so for an experienced pathologist, a diagnosis of sarcoidosis can often be readily made. Now, sarcoidosis is a diagnosis of exclusion, and so when a pathologist sees what appears to be sarcoidosis, when a clinician sees what appears to be sarcoidosis, you want to rule out other conditions that can mimic these non-caseating granulomas. A PAS stain was done for fungus and was negative. PCR was done for TB, tuberculosis, and was negative. And so the diagnosis was scalp sarcoidosis in this patient. Scalp sarcoidosis without systemic involvement. The workup of this patient was negative for any evidence of systemic involvement with sarcoidosis. So this is a really unusual case because most patients with sarcoidosis on the skin or the scalp have sarcoidosis inside the body somewhere. So whenever you diagnose scalp sarcoidosis, you have to go looking 
for the possibility that the patient has systemic sarcoidosis. The patient was treated with topical steroids, topical desoxymetazone 0.25% twice daily, and remarkably had a reduction in redness, reduction in scaling, and experienced some hair growth. And as we'll talk about in just a minute, some sarcoidosis of the scalp is scarring, so we don't expect hair to come back necessarily. Some sarcoidosis of the scalp is non-scarring, so we hope it comes back to some degree. And so this patient had a nice improvement in hair density with a topical steroid. So this was a particularly interesting case because it was an isolated case of scalp sarcoidosis. The patient had no systemic involvement. We do need to remember that patients who have sarcoidosis of the scalp, when the pathologist writes back to us and says, you may not be aware of it, but your patient has sarcoidosis of the scalp, a patient needs a thorough evaluation to rule out systemic sarcoidosis. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's dive in a little deeper into sarcoidosis and scalp sarcoidosis. So scalp sarcoidosis is pretty rare and the condition is easily missed. Many, many scalp conditions can look just like sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis is this wonderful mimicker. So what is sarcoidosis anyways? Well, it's an inflammatory disease. We don't understand fully the cause of sarcoidosis, but it's an inflammatory disease that affects multiple organs in the body. The lungs and the lymph nodes are most commonly affected, and so are the eyes. And about 90% of patients with sarcoidosis have lung involvement. And we need to do chest x-rays, we need to be, do pulmonary function tests in patients with suspected sarcoidosis. About 25% of patients with systemic sarcoidosis have skin involvement. We need to do head-to-toe exams in patients with suspected sarcoidosis to look for various types of skin involvement, and we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But it's a multi-system disease, so there can be liver involvement, bone involvement, nervous system involvement, heart involvement, kidney involvement. And so when you're evaluating a patient who you think has sarcoidosis, you have to ask yourself, could the patient have eye involvement? Let's ask the eye doctor. Dear eye doctor, do you think the patient has eye involvement? Does the patient have lung involvement? We need to do a chest x-ray, pulmonary function tests. Could the patient have heart involvement? We need to do an ECG. Of course, we need to ask the patient, do you have chest pain, shortness of breath, swelling in the feet? Does the patient have kidney involvement? We have to look at blood pressure issues. We have to look at creatinine levels. Does the patient have involvement of the liver? We have to look at liver enzymes. We have to examine the liver. We have to perform a neurological exam. So when we think a patient has sarcoidosis, we have to do a systematic review from head to toe. And this may not be you. This may be a primary care physician, an internist, a subspecialist physician who assists you in determining whether the patient has systemic involvement. But one of the keys to diagnosing sarcoidosis is finding these non-caseating granulomas in various organs of the body. Anyone can be affected by sarcoidosis, but two groups are more likely affected, and that's those of Irish and Scandinavian background and those of African background. Females tend to be more affected than males. How does it present itself? Well, some patients with sarcoidosis truly are asymptomatic, but many patients are symptomatic, and about 50% of patients have lung symptoms of some kind, shortness of breath, cough. Some patients have fever, weight loss. Patients may have fever, they have may weight loss, they may have eye issues, they may have joint symptoms. But sometimes the skin is the very first site of involvement. Often the skin occurs at the same time that there's systemic involvement, but the skin can be the first site of involvement. What about scalp sarcoidosis? Well, scalp sarcoidosis, as we talked about earlier, is uncommon. And in all the medical literature that's ever been published, there's only about 50 cases of scalp sarcoidosis. Most are in women of African-American origin who have systemic involvement. Scalp sarcoidosis can be scarring or non-scarring. It's most likely scarring. It's less likely to be non-scarring. And so the patient we mentioned earlier in this case report had what appeared to be non-scarring alopecia with this significant regrowth. What does scalp sarcoidosis look like? Well, it can look like anything. 
It's a wonderful mimicker, so we have to be humble to that fact. But it often has an orange color. And so when I work with physicians and trainees, I often say, let's think about sarcoidosis as sarcoidosis. Think of that orange color in sarcoidosis, and you'll you'll pick up a lot of cases, a lot of cases that you might have otherwise missed. Sarcoidosis. It's a helpful memory tool that helps us pick up some cases of scalp sarcoidosis. Now, scalp sarcoidosis can look like lichen planopilaris, discoid lupus, pseudopalad, central alopecia, CCCA, folliculitis decalvans, scleroderma, acne keloidalis. It can even look like alopecia areata. It's a wonderful mimicker. And so it's on the list of those medical conditions that mimic so many things. It can mimic arthritis. It can mimic a neurological disease. It can mimic a kidney disease. It can mimic a lung disease. And so we have to be aware of this ability of sarcoidosis to mimic many conditions. It may be orange. It may be scaly. And there are many articles published online free that you can review at your leisure, which show some wonderful images of scalp sarcoidosis. Long and colleagues... Dr. Michelle Tarbach's group published a very nice report of a patient in JAD case reports in 2020 who presented with a fracture. And the fracture was ultimately found to be bone sarcoidosis along with liver sarcoidosis, but she had this scaly rash on the scalp that looked like psoriasis that was sarcoidosis. House and colleagues present a study of a patient who was thought to have folliculitis decalvans treated with antibiotics. When it was biopsied, it was sarcoidosis. Gosh and colleagues present a nice study in the International Journal of Trichology in 2014 of a patient again with isolated scalp sarcoidosis here presenting as a scarring alopecia having this orange color, sarcoorange dosis. Another study in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association in 2018 described a woman presenting with scarring alopecia that looked like central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. Roche and colleagues presented a very nice study in JAD case reports in 2020 of a patient presenting with what looked like acne keloidalis, these bumps at the back. A biopsy showed sarcoidosis. And so we clearly do miss cases of sarcoidosis. It's amazing imitator of so many things. And so when patients don't respond to treatment as expected, it's very worthwhile to biopsy. But of course, hair loss should never be viewed as hair loss in isolation. If a patient with hair loss has cough, we have to ask ourselves, hmm, could that hair loss have anything to do with that cough? When patients have hair loss and joint pains, we have to ask, hmm, could that hair loss have anything to do with the joint pain? And when patients say to us, hey doc, I have a rash, do you want to see my rash? Even though they're in the hair clinic, we need to think about that rash, because that rash may have valuable information about the cause of the hair loss. And so that's how you can pick up many cases of scalp sarcoidosis because most patients with scalp sarcoidosis have other systemic features. And so when you biopsy it, the pathologist sees the non-caseating granulomas and a pathologist can often look down the microscope and say, you know what, I think this is probably sarcoidosis. They're going to do a number of tests to exclude other things, infectious etiologies, fungi but sarcoidosis diagnosis can often be readily made. It may show these classic non-caseating granulomas, these so-called naked granulomas. They look like these balls of epithelioid histiocytes sitting down there in the skin with these strange-looking Langhans-type giant cells. And so remember, many patients with sarcoidosis have skin involvement, and so we really need to do a head-to-toe exam, and about 25% of patients with sarcoidosis have skin involvement. It may take on various forms, but there's two types of forms about two types of skin involvement that you should be aware of. One is specific lesions and non-specific lesions. The specific lesions of sarcoid show these famous non-caseating granulomas when you do a biopsy. They may be red, yellow, orange, maculopapular lesions, plaques, nodules, one of the most specific of all the specific lesions of sarcoidosis is lupus perineal. And lupus perineal is skin sarcoid, where patients have these purpuric or purplish-blue lesions on the nose, cheeks, ears. And about 50% of patients 
with pulmonary sarcoid have lupus perineal. The non-specific lesions are rashes on the skin, but when you biopsy them, they don't show the famous granulomas. There may be erythema nodosum, calcinosis cutis, parigo, erythema multiforme. There may be nail changes. These are the non-specific lesions of sarcoidosis. So what do you do when you see a patient with sarcoidosis? We do a good history and physical. That comes first. There's no substitute for history and physical. But you really want to do whatever you can to figure out, does the patient sitting in front of me have lung involvement, lymph node involvement, eye involvement, heart involvement, liver involvement, kidney involvement, bone involvement. And so you get a lot of that out of the history and physical, but you're going to order a whole bunch of blood tests, CBC, liver enzymes, kidney function tests, calcium, maybe ACE levels, screen for TB. We'll do a chest x-ray, an ECG, pulmonary function tests maybe, send the patient to an ophthalmologist or an optometrist for an eye exam, and you'll biopsy. You'll biopsy to see if you can find these non-caseating granulomas somewhere. How do you treat it? Well, you can treat it with topical steroids if you're talking about scalp, sarcoidosis, steroid injections, prednisone sometimes, hydroxychloroquine. As the patient has more and more systemic sarcoids, sometimes you need hydroxychloroquine, prednisone, methotrexate, cyclosporin, TNF inhibitors. So there are a variety of treatments depending on whether the patient has just scalp sarcoidosis or sarcoidosis in the body. Sarcoidosis can be life-threatening, and so when you see a patient with scalp sarcoidosis, keep in mind that if they have systemic involvement, it could be a serious disease, it might not be a serious disease, but the mortality can be as high as 5 to 10%. And patients with severe lung disease, fibrosis on CT, pulmonary hypertension, have a higher chance of dying. And so sarcoidosis can be a fatal condition in some patients. So we, so we do need to take it seriously. And multiple disciplines handle sarcoidosis. So you may be helping with scalp sarcoidosis, but the patient may be seeing a respirologist, a respirologist and a cardiologist, maybe a respirologist and a cardiologist and a nephrologist, maybe an, a, a rheumatologist, maybe other specialties as well. If they have CNS sarcoid, they may be seeing a neurologist. And so it's a multi- disciplinary approach to treating this condition. From sarcoidosis, let's talk about JAK inhibitors. What do you tell patients when they ask you, is this a safe medication for me to use? Well, we've got some studies so far that suggest that it seems to be reasonably safe. There are some side effects that can occur, an increased chance of infection. Other side effects can occur as well. Blood counts can change. Cholesterol can go up. Sometimes you get increases in CK. Some patients don't tolerate the medication well, but most patients do, especially younger patients. So we have to do blood tests to monitor. We have to rule out infectious conditions to begin. We have to screen for tuberculosis before we begin. There's an increased risk of infections, especially zoster. But many patients do really well. So when a patient says, what do you think about the safety? We often respond, I often respond, that based on what we know so far, there's reasonably good data to suggest that in the hair loss clinic that the medication tends to be well tolerated. What we have to remember is that we don't have a long, long number of years of follow-up for JAK inhibitors in the world. And so if someone is 20 and says to me, do you think this will have any side effects when I'm if I take it now for my alopecia and I use it for 40 years, will I get any problems when I'm 60? We don't know. We've been using this medication 10 years, so we don't know much longer than that. And so JAK inhibitors are increasingly studied for various hair loss conditions. And in fact, we're just a few months away until you and me talk on the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast about the very first JAK inhibitor approved for alopecia areata. And there's more that will follow after that and more after that. So we're about to close a chapter in the hair loss world where we have zero FDA approved medications for alopecia areata, zero Health Canada approved medications for alopecia areata, zero 
European Commission approved medications for alopecia areata. That chapter is coming to a close and we're about to start a new chapter where we have our very first approved medications. JAK inhibitors are certainly already approved for a wide variety of conditions. Psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. And ruxolitinib was approved in 2011 for myelofibrosis. 2012, tofacitinib was approved for rheumatoid arthritis. And then after that, we heard it's approved for psoriatic arthritis, ulcerative colitis, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, Baricitinib was approved in 2018 for rheumatoid arthritis, and we just heard recently that it was approved for COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. And in the hair loss clinic, we use JAK inhibitors off-label for alopecia areata. That's one of the most common indications. We use it for lichen planopilaris, frontal fibrosing alopecia, folliculitis decalvans. How safe are they? Well, it seems reasonably safe, but there are side effects, and there are some major limitations to being able to fully answer this question. So it's an evolving story. In medicine, we're often uncomfortable with uncertainty, but we have to be comfortable with uncertainty because this is an evolving story. If you want to know about the safety of JAK inhibitors over 20 years of use, we don't know. No one knows. So if you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. But there's a lot of uncertainty in some areas of long-term safety of JAK inhibitors. So it's an evolving story, and we need to stay tuned. We need to stay tuned each month, each week, each year, because this story is evolving. So what are some of the challenges when a patient says to me, hey, doc, what do you think about the long-term safety of JAK inhibitors? If I got to use this medication 20 years, what do you think? Safe? Not safe? Well, this is a tough question. What are some of the challenges? Well, in the hair loss world, Most of the studies involving JAK inhibitors are small, and that's okay. That's just how the studies are done. And one of the largest hair loss studies to date, one of the best well-conducted studies to date, has about 500 patients in each group. The BRAVE AA1 of baricitinib that I reviewed not too long ago had about 600 patients. The BRAVE AA2 had 500 patients. So just a few hundred patients get the medication. Some patients get placebo. Most of the other tofacitinib studies in the literature have a few dozen patients. Some have 100 patients. But the studies are small. And so if you want studies of JAK inhibitors that have 16,000 patients and 48,000 patients, we don't have them. And so we have to be aware that JAK inhibitors are going to be approved by various health regulatory bodies for hair loss, not based on studies that are a million patients or 100,000 patients or even a few thousand patients, but on studies of a few hundred patients. And that's okay. That's just a reality of how studies are done and the number of patients that are needed for us to get pretty solid conclusions about short-term safety and efficacy. And so the statisticians and the mathematicians tell us if you want to understand how well this drug works and get some good information on short-term safety, you can do that with a few hundred patients. What are some of the other challenges? Well, most studies of JAK inhibitors are done in patients that don't have hair loss. And so most of my knowledge about what to tell patients about JAK inhibitors, what tests to order before starting a JAK inhibitor, what tests to order after starting a JAK inhibitor, come from studies that have been done in the rheumatology field, mainly studies of tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis. We do pretty much the same thing when we start baricitinib or ruxolitinib for hair loss, but the largest experience worldwide is with tofacitinib. It's really senseless for anyone who's going to prescribe JAK inhibitors to go ahead and prescribe a JAK inhibitor unless there's some pretty good knowledge about tofacitinib. We base so much on what we do on studies of tofacitinib in the past. So if you don't know tofacitinib literature, then it's pretty important that one does. So we need to understand tofacitinib literature really well. And on November the 6th, 2012, the FDA approved tofacitinib for rheumatoid arthritis. So the world has about 10 years of experience with this medication for rheumatoid arthritis. We only have about six years, eight years max, of experience with JAK inhibitors for hair loss. And so the other issue is that we have pretty limited follow-up. So we don't have 70 years of data behind us about using JAK inhibitors. Do we really need 70 years of data? Well, yes, of course. 
That would be the ideal situation. If you want to be 100% certain about the long-term side effects of a medication over 70 years, then you need follow-up data that extends to 70 years. That's pretty simple. If you want to be somewhat certain about the long-term safety in human beings, then we need reasonably long-term studies in human beings. If you want to be somewhat certain about the long-term side effects in human beings with hair loss, then you need reasonably long-term studies done in patients with hair loss. And we don't have those yet. So we're about 10 years out from the date that we started using oral tofacitinib in rheumatoid arthritis, and the oral surveillance study tells us, that was just published in the New England Journal, that in patients 50 years of older, 50 years of age and older, who had rheumatoid arthritis and were using methotrexate, that JAK inhibitors may increase the risk of heart disease and cancer. Experts debate back and forth whether this has any relevance in younger patients, and so we really don't know. But if you're looking for long-term studies of JAK inhibitors in hair loss, there are none. The BRAVE AA1 and the BRAVE AA2 studies go to 36 weeks. These are wonderful studies. Many companies are looking at JAK inhibitors in hair loss and extending these studies out to three years and four years. That's wonderful. Stay tuned. I'm going to be following those studies closely. But one needs to keep in mind that we have zero good long-term studies of JAK inhibitors in hair loss patients. We really need those. And so I'm always on the watch for studies concerning safety of JAK inhibitors. I'm interested in clinical trial data, well-conducted clinical trials. What seems to be happening there in patients who are using these medications under controlled settings, but I'm also interested in real-world data. What happens in patients that are out there in their homes using medications? Well, I'd like to review one of those studies by Hoisnard and colleagues looking at the safety of JAK inhibitors, ruxolitinib, tofacitinib, and baricitinib, in a pharmacovigilance study. And so this study that I'm about to review with you is a retrospective study where the authors look into a database where doctors, clinicians, pharmacists, patients, anyone can put information into if they've had side effects in the world. And so it's this wonderful database with over 24 million individual case safety reports. And so what authors often do in these pharmacovigilance studies is they look in this huge database, enormous database, and they look at the drug of interest, here, JAK inhibitors, and they ask, are more patients using tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib, are more patients in the database reporting a certain side effect with a JAK inhibitor compared to other drugs in the world? Or is it the same? Or is it less? And from those kind of studies, you get signals or hints that, wow, when I look in the database, it seems that the drug I'm interested in, in seems to cause more headaches than other drugs. So maybe this drug really is responsible for headaches. I'm just making this up as an example of a drug of interest. When it comes to the JAK inhibitors, researchers look in the database and they ask, do the JAK inhibitors cause more cancer than other drugs? Do they cause more infections? Do they cause more blood clots? Do they cause more heart disease than other drugs that are in this 24 million individual case report database? So these pharmacovigilance studies are really important because they provide us with a different way of looking at data with very large numbers. And so the authors here, Hoisnard and colleagues, looked at 126,815 individual case safety reports involving the JAK inhibitors. Tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib. Tofacitinib had the highest number of reports. Not surprising because it's been out longer than baricitinib. What patient groups reported side effects with JAK inhibitors? Well, more than three-quarters of the safety reports for baricitinib and tofacitinib were for women. Rheumatoid arthritis was the underlying diagnosis in about 55% of the tofacitinib reports. And for about 80% of the baricitinib reports, rheumatoid arthritis was the underlying diagnosis. Not surprising, because before this year, the only Approval for baricitinib was rheumatoid arthritis. 
The majority of the case reports for ruxolitinib were in patients with myelofibrosis or polycythemia. So what kind of medical conditions seem to be increased in patients using JAK inhibitors? Well, infections, musculoskeletal, connective tissue problems, neoplasms, benign, malignant, and unspecified neoplasms, blood and lymphatic system issues, and respiratory, thoracic, and mediastinal disorders, so issues in the chest and lungs. So let's look at these. What about infections? What kind of infections appear to be increased in in patients using JAK inhibitors? Well, the authors found that there was an increased number of reports compared to other types of drugs for viral infections, especially herpes infections, herpes simplex, herpes, herpes zoster, and influenza viral infections. And it seemed there were more herpes viral infections for, tof- for baricitinib than tofacitinib, and more for tofacitinib than ruxolitinib. So that was the order. It seemed like baricitinib had the higher risk. For influenza, highest risk was for tofacitinib, then baricitinib, then ruxolitinib. What about neoplasms? Remember, you can have benign neoplasms, malignant neoplasms. Well, there were hematopoietic blood neoplasms that were in the database, skin neoplasms that were malignant, leukemias, soft tissue, lung-related neoplasms. There's no difference in the reporting of neoplasms according to the dose of baricitinib or tofacitinib, but there did appear to be an increased reporting of these types of neoplasms compared to some of the other medications in the database. What about blood clots? Well, the authors found that there was an, an increased reporting of blood clots for those using JAK inhibitors compared to other drugs. The greatest report overreporting of embolism and thrombosis was for baricitinib, followed by ruxolitinib, followed by tofacitinib. No difference according to dose. They also noticed that tofacitinib seemed to have an increased reporting of gastrointestinal perforation. This included gastrointestinal perforation, large intestinal perforation, diverticular perforation, intestinal perforation, gastric perforation. And so tofacitinib may have some unique features in in GI or gastrointestinal system perforation in this particular pharmacovigilance study. Interestingly, there was no real overreporting for cardiac issues or cerebrovascular issues. It wasn't really an increased signal for myocardial infarction or cerebrovascular events with the JAK inhibitors compared to other drugs. And this is important because in the oral surveillance study, it's in the New England Journal, it suggested that some of these JAK inhibitors may have an increased risk of myocardial infarction or heart issues. So the conclusion here is that perhaps these JAK inhibitors have an increased risk of blood clots, cancer, infection, and perhaps for tofacitinib, GI perforation as well. So this is a really important study. It gives us some insight into the real-world use of JAK inhibitors. And again, these are pharmacovigilance studies. These are patients and doctors filling out information sheets online and submitting data it does not necessarily apply cause and effect. There's lots of limitations to these kind of studies, but it gives a different spin on how we look at data. And so that there was this increased overreporting of infection, herpes zoster, influenza, as well as some other fungal infections as well, bacterial infections as well, blood clots, neoplasm, and gastrointestinal perforation. And so we have to be aware of these. These are what we need to stay tuned for as we follow these drugs over the next 5, 10, 15, and 20 years. What do we tell patients about blood clots? Well, it seems it's a risk. We tell patients there's an increased risk of blood clots. It's low. It seems to be dose-dependent in what we know so far. That's why we don't give 20 milligrams of tofacitinib. We give 10 milligrams. Infections are increased. That's why we vaccinate patients for herpes zoster. The cancer question is not clear. In certain groups, it may be an increased risk of cancer. In other groups, we don't know. Studies haven't really been long enough to really get a good sense about cancer risks. In hair loss patients, at least, our longest study is 36 weeks. And so we'll need to stay tuned for our hair loss publications about cancer risks. And of course, we'll follow very closely the 
rheumatoid arthritis literature, the psoriatic arthritis literature, the ulcerative colitis literature, and all of the other literature where these JAK inhibitors are being used. This pharmacovigilance study didn't suggest an increased risk of overreporting for heart problems and cerebrovascular issues like strokes, but clearly we need to follow that data. And so baricitinib in this study may be associated with increased risk of herpes zoster infections compared to tofacitinib, increased risk of blood clots compared to tofacitinib. But all the JAK inhibitors seem to have some kind of an increased cancer signal. Who does that occur in? Those issues are not clear. But in this particular study, no increased risk of heart issues. So what do we say to patients when they ask us how safe are JAK inhibitors in hair loss patients? Well, short term, they seem pretty safe. There's an increased risk of infections. There is an increased risk of blood, blood issues, blood clots, blood lab abnormalities, increased cholesterol, increased CK. But stay tuned for the long-term risks. We don't have those studies yet. They are some of the most effective medications for alopecia areata, so they're in our toolbox. We need to know side effects well. We need to convey this information to patients, and we need to convey the uncertainty. We do not know all the information yet. And that uncertainty, that uncertainty does not rest well with many people. We like to be certain about what we tell patients. We like to say, this is the chance of X, or this is the chance of Y. We can't do that with tofacitinib long-term side effects because we don't know the long-term side effects. But for now, it appears that infections, blood clots, cancer are very much a part of the side effect profile of JAK inhibitors for some patients. But which patients are most likely to have these side effects? Is it patients in their 60s and 70s with rheumatoid arthritis? Who knows? What patients are least likely to have these side effects? What patients are not likely to have these side effects at all? At all? Is a 20-year-old patient with alopecia areata starting a JAK inhibitor likely to have any of these side effects at all? Is the cancer discussion even relevant? We don't know. We don't have that data in the hair loss world, so we have to be careful about saying it doesn't exist because we just don't have that data. And so clearly we need proper patient selection and we need diligent monitoring um, when we start JAK inhibitors. Patients at increased risk for blood clots might not be good candidates for JAK inhibitors. Patients at increased risk for cancer might not be good candidates for JAK inhibitors. And so we need to understand this literature well we need to understand in this particular study, just like all other studies, there's limitations. And so in these kind of spontaneous reporting databases, even though the Vigibase database is powerful, 24 million individual case reports sitting there for researchers to look at, there are limitations. You can't estimate the prevalence. You cannot estimate the prevalence or the incidence of adverse events. You can't really attribute cause and effect here. So you have to be careful about how you interpret these databases. But what these databases do is they give us signals. They allow us to sit up and say, you know what? We need to study this a little better. We need to keep a close eye on this. And that's what these databases often do. They send us signals that tell us that, you know what? You need to study this closer. You need to develop well-designed studies. If you don't think the pharmacovigilance studies are good studies, well, you need to design good studies that answer these questions. From JAK inhibitors, we move on to talk about eyelash trichomegaly. What conditions or what situations cause eyelashes to grow long? Well, let's take a look at that. Eyelash trichomegaly is defined as an increase in the length, especially above 12 millimeters, or the thickness or the curling or the stiffness of existing eyelashes. And the term trichomegaly has been around a long time. It was introduced in the medical literature in 1944. So why do you need to know a list of all the causes of trichomegaly? Well, when your patient presents with long eyelashes, it's important to know the causes. And there's four big groups because that's how you're going to ask questions. And that's how you're going to examine the patient. There are congenital issues that cause trichomegaly. There's medications that cause trichomegaly, both topical and oral. And there's systemic conditions that cause trichomegaly. And so a patient with trichomegaly who has glaucoma and is using eye drops for glaucoma may not need any workup. Perhaps their trichomegaly is from the medication they use. 
But as you'll come to see in a minute, some causes of trichomegaly can have serious underlying medical conditions. And so a patient who has trichomegaly and has fatigue, muscle weakness, weight loss, and rashes may need a very detailed workup for a systemic condition. So what are the causes of trichomegaly? Well, there's four big groups. There's genetic conditions that cause trichomegaly, and there's about 20 genetic conditions that are well described. Topical medications, there's a handful of those. Oral medications, there's about 16 of them. And systemic conditions, there's another 14 or 15 systemic conditions. A whole host of genetic syndromes, and one needs to simply look up these genetic syndromes when you have individuals with trichomegaly. Usually patients have other issues than just trichomegaly when they have these genetic syndromes, and so it's not just trichomegaly that the patient presents with. You need to know about topical medications, these glaucoma eye drops, latanoprost, bimatoprost, travoprost, they all cause eyelash elongation. A very clever invention was to put these glaucoma medications into eye drops and to use them on the eyelashes in bimatoprost is latisse and they're used purposefully to cause longer eyelashes. Topical cyclosporin can cause longer eyelashes. Topical tacrolimus can as well. A long list of oral medications can cause trichomegaly or eyelash elongation. Uh, Zidovudine for HIV can cause it. Cyclosporin, tacrolimus, the EGF inhibitors, the new FGFR inhibitors or fibroblast growth factor receptors can. Oral minoxidil can. And a variety of medications can. The longer eyelashes usually occur within a few months of starting treatment and it's usually reversible when the drug is stopped. And we'll take a look at it in a minute. Trichomegaly from an EGFR inhibitor, but all the EGFR inhibitors can cause trichomegaly. What about systemic conditions? Well, there's about 14 systemic conditions ranging from HIV to underlying cancer, perineoplastic syndromes, the so-called acquired hypertrichosis, lanuginosa, lupus, dermatomyositis, anorexia, atopic dermatitis, hypothyroidism, pregnancy can all cause hyper-elongation of the eyelashes or trichomegaly. What are some of the complications of trichomegaly? Well, these longer eyelashes can affect vision. Sometimes they can impair vision. These longer eyelashes can sometimes cause infection in the eye, and they can sometimes rub the eye and cause what's called trichiasis and ulceration of the cornea. And so we have to be aware of the effects on the eye. And any patient who has trichomegaly and has eye symptoms needs to be referred to an eye doctor to rule out underlying eye issues. And so in the March-April issue of the International Journal of Trichology, a very nice report was published, Lady with Long Eyelashes by Inamadar and Kumar. This was a 60-year-old woman, postmenopausal woman, who presented with an eight-year history of longer eyelashes. They were 23 millimeters in length at the center. This is eyelash trichomegaly that she had. In addition to the eyelash changes, she had increased hair on the lips and on the chin. So there was hypertrichosis. And further evaluation showed that she was using the EGFR inhibitor, epidermal growth factor inhibitor drug, or lotinib, for non-small cell lung cancer. So EGFR inhibitors are indeed in that list of 16 or so medications that can cause trichomegaly. And erlotinib is a medication that competitively binds to the tyrosine kinase domain of the EGFR receptor, and it inactivates signal transduction through epidermal growth factor signaling. It impairs the ability of hairs to enter into telogen phase, and so the hair keeps growing. It stays in antigen phase. And what happens when you keep hairs in antigen phase or the growing phase? Well, they grow longer. And so trichomegaly is seen within two, three, four months of starting EGF inhibitors. Patients often get eyelash elongation as well as hair growth on the face and sometimes other areas as well. These EGFR inhibitors are well known to dermatologists because these drugs cause a number of dermatologic issues and they can be remembered by the PRIDE, P-R-I-D-E acronym, and it's called the PRIDE complex, where you get papulopustules, acne-like lesions, and perinicchia, that's the P, 
regulatory abnormalities of hair growth, that's the R, itching, that's the I, dryness, that's the D, EGFR inhibitors, that's the E. So this is the pride complex that's so common with the EGFR inhibitors. Infection and trichiasis and secondary corneal ulcerations are very real concerns, and we need to be aware of this. And so patients with trichomegaly that are saying, my eyes are red and they're itchy, we need them to see eye doctors to help us determine if there's any eye issues, infection, or ulceration. All of the EGFR inhibitors do this. Cetuximib, erlotinib, gefitinib. EGFR inhibitors trigger trichomegaly within months of starting the medication, and once the medication is stopped, the hair falls out. It's reversible largely in most patients. And so that's it. For this week, we've reviewed six studies. We've reviewed oral minoxidil use in children and the good safety of oral minoxidil in a study of 45 patients by Dr. Van O'Gelvin. Dr. Van O'Gelvin's group shared with us a very nice study of oral minoxidil compounding errors and what happens when doses are 10, 100, or 1,000 times higher than the intended dose. 12 patients in that study did fairly well once they stopped and that was fortunate, but two had heart, one had a heart attack and one had a ischemic stroke. Doxycycline can cause pigmentation, so this isn't just an issue of minocycline. Doxycycline can cause facial pigmentation. It can also affect the mucosa. It's important for us to remember. Scalp sarcoidosis is a great imitator, and so we need to be aware of that, and we need to be humble to the fact that sarcoidosis mimics so many things. And we reviewed a case of scalp sarcoidosis where a patient did not have underlying systemic sarcoidosis in the lungs or the liver or the joints or the kidneys or the bone. And that's not common because most patients with scalp sarcoidosis have underlying systemic sarcoidosis. We talked about JAK inhibitor safety and a pharmacovigilance study that tells us that JAK inhibitors may increase the risk of blood clots infections and perhaps cancer as well. And that's well established in the literature that these are side effects for us to be watching for Long-term safety data isn't available in the hair loss world. We're up to 36 weeks with a wonderful study in, in the New England Journal of, of Baricitinib. We don't have long-term studies of hair loss patients using JAK inhibitors for two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And so we need to be humble to the fact that we don't understand the long-term study, long-term data. And so if you want to answer a patient's question, how safe are these drugs long-term? You have to dive into the rheumatoid arthritis literature. You have to dive into the ankylosing spondylitis literature, the psoriatic arthritis literature. That's the best we can do so far until we get better studies in the hair loss world. We talked about eyelash trichomegaly and the four big groups that can cause eyelash trichomegaly. There are these congenital syndromes, of which there's about 20. There's a handful of topical medications, especially the glaucoma eye drops. There's about 16 or so systemic medications which can cause trichomegaly and there's a number of systemic conditions that can cause trichomegaly as well. And so that's it for this week. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. If you'd like to connect with our office at any time to share your thoughts or suggestions, we're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. We're back June 6th, Monday, June 6th. That's the first week of the month of June, and we're talking about alopecia areata and androgenetic alopecia. That'll be the first Monday of the month of June, and there's a lot to talk about with recent updates in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back for another episode of Evidence-Based Hair.